The scripture this morning is from Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Thank you. You may be seated as you're being seated. The kids through fourth grade, you're dismissed to your classes. I'd also encourage you to turn your copy of God's Word, if you have it, to Ephesians chapter 1, as we explore the text in front of us. Now, as you're turning, there's a couple of things I'd like to uh, draw your attention to. Uh, we're entering the book of Ephesians, and Ephesians is an epistle. And what an epistle is, it's a book that is written to a group of people. And we've kind of talked about that before, but this book that is written here is a one-way conversation. All right, so we're getting half of the conversations is taking place. And so when you're doing that, it takes a little bit of digging to understand what's happening. It's no different than uh, this played out in my own life. One time my wife was uh, on the phone with uh, one of our uh, parents and she was, we were waiting for some important medical news from them. And she picks up the phone and, and he says hello and says, wow, all right, I'll have to tell Tim. That's interesting. And I'm sitting there like, What's interesting? What is she going to have to tell me? And so now, because my wife doesn't sometimes express things in positive or negative, it was just a wow. And I'm like, is that a good wow? Is that a bad? And so as I'm listening to this, I had to listen to every word she said to try to get a nuance in there. Is this going to be a good thing or is this going to be a bad news that we're expecting? And that is why when we look in epistle, we need to learn how to chew and take apart these sentences and understand them to get the meaning of what's actually happening. And so before we do that, though, before we take apart this text, what I want to do is let's look at the whole book and get Paul's arguments here. And what is he talking about when he writes this book? Well, the book of Ephesians can be roughly broken down into two sections, chapters 1 through 3 is one section. If you want to just turn real quick in your copy of God's Word to the end of chapter 3, you'll see there a doxology and then an amen, all right, where he's kind of concluding his thought process. At the end of chapter 3, they're beginning into chapter 4. Because chapters 1 through 3, in a way, talk about the blessings of salvation, and for those who are saved, your position in Christ. All right, now chapters 4 through 6, the second half of the book are going to talk about our walk in Christ, which is going to be characterized by unity and purity. And so you're going to get kind of a two thoughts here going forth. But you go, well, why again? Remember, it's an epistle. We have to go, so why was this said first, right? And then why was this said second? 
All right, and so you want to look and go, why are chapters one through three the way they are? Why are they so rich with theology and doctrine? Why are they so rich with what Christ has done? Well, I'd like to give you two reasons why Paul understands that we need theology and doctrine in the life of a Christian. Well, the first reason is this. We live in a world that is not pro-God. We live in a world that hates God. We live in a world that does not just hate God, they despise Him. We live in a world that's at battle with the things of God. Because all week long, I am hearing the praise of man telling me to put myself in the center of the universe. All week long, I hear it's all about you, Tim. It's all about your needs. It's all about what you want to do. And if I'm not careful, I start to listen to that. I start to walk through it because the world every day does not wake up and say, let's give them a break today. No, every single day the world is saying, come, come and drink from our well that's supposed to be satisfying. Come this way. Sin never takes a day off. The news doesn't say, listen, from 1045 to noon, we'll talk to you about the news and the rest of the week will give you off. No, it's continually. It's relenting pace after us, trying to get our taste buds into a love for the things they want us to love. And why we need theology and doctrine is this. is because theology and doctrine give me a proper understanding of the gospel. And the gospel is the logs on the fuel of my life that cause my heart for Christ to burn with love for God. And this fire causes holy, obedient living. And that holy obedience produces fruit that will not corrupt. And so what I need to do is I need to be continuing, as Paul says in Romans 12, renewing my mind. I can't just put it on cruise for even a moment because the world's relenting battle against us does not stop. And we need this understanding. We need to wrestle with the doctrines and the theology of God because the doctrines and the theology of this world are coming at us nonstop, like a torrent wave that it wants to sweep us away into that destruction. And we need these anchoring posts. That's why Paul starts off the way he does. But what we see in this text that we see in front of us is his normal hello that he would write in most of his epistles. You see, normally in Paul, in most of his letters that he writes, he starts off with a prayer. And we'll see a prayer that Paul is going to be praying. But if you notice, it's 15 verses into it. All right, like why didn't he start off with this at the beginning? Well, remember again, Paul is in prison. And he's taking a moment to pause. And it's as if, as he was moving and following what God had wanted him to do, the deep truths about God, he had not had time to really mull on them yet because you're going from place to place, sharing the gospel, hearing new things and everything. And as if Paul takes a moment to stop and as if the wave of everything that God had done is now crashing upon his soul and he gets ready to write and what comes out is the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God and he didn't even say hi yet, all right? In a way, I see it in my own life. The closest I get to anything like this many times in my own life is when I'm working on the like, brakes of my car and I need to call my dad to ask him for help. And of course, I can't use his phone because he never has it on. So I call my mom and the first thing I say is, hey, mom, is dad there? And we go right to the conversation. And my wife kind of in the background goes, hey, Tim, you know, hi, mom. How's it going? You know, and in my mind, I'm just plowing through because I have an important message to communicate to my dad to get help, right? And so what is Paul? What are we learning about Paul? 
He's got an important message to communicate. And he's trying to communicate this. And as he does, he's trying to understand to these people the greatness and the grandeur of your salvation. For those in the room that are saved. Because Paul writes, in summary of those first 14 verses, he writes this, praise God, praise the Father who chose you. Praise the Son who redeemed you. Praise the Holy Spirit that sealed you. And when you sit there for a moment, you say, wow, the triune God stepped into time and space and saved a wretched sinner like myself. And the old song that I used to sing growing up, I'm so glad that I'm a part of the family of God. When I get done reading this, I change the words and I say, I'm surprised I'm a part of the family of God because I see within me dwells no good thing. And those first 14 verses caused me to go, me? Me, really? You know how sinful I am and I don't even know how sinful I am because I know that there's a lot of sins I still think I'm okay with. And he chose to save me. I'll let you decide if you're worthy of salvation. I'll tell you you're not. But he chose to save me. Really? Me? And it should sink in. And remember, as we go through this, uh, my prayer is as we look through these verses here, that as we walk through the desert of this world that continually is trying to dry out our soul spiritually, that we'll take the deep sponge of the truth of God's word that is soaking with water and drink deeply in these truths that we're about ready to understand. And may they wash over our dry soul that our praise to God then is able to praise him in a new and bright and exciting way of all the things he's done. Because if we're not careful, Satan wants to come in and say, you know what, 1 through 14, that's kind of hard to understand. You know, that's deep stuff. And God is saying, and Paul is saying, no, that depth is what anchors you. That depth is what gives you the fuel and the fire to live a Christian walk. We, and Satan is trying to say, no, read Aesop's fables, and that's going to be good enough for you for the day. And you know what, then when the world beats upon us, our nickel and dime theology, you know what, it washes us away and we wonder why we cannot respond into the truth. And so what I'd like to do right now is I'd like to take these, these verses right now here and start pulling them, not apart out of context, but pulling them apart and saying, what can we learn from them? You'll see in your bulletins there, if you look in dead center, in your bulletin there, you'll see the sermon notes and in the bottom right corner, there'll be the... Uh, the verses that we're going to be really pulling apart. And I encourage you, if you want, I'm going to encourage you to underline things and to do all sorts of fun stuff. You'll see it on the slides as we go. And start to go, how does this text speak into this world? All right, what are we supposed to do with it? So let's hop right in and get started. Remember, this is a prayer that Paul is praying. All right, and so let's go, as we go down through it, we want to, we want to ask ourselves, why is he praying it? And then what are we supposed to do with those things that he's praying about? So here we go, verse 15. We see for this reason, circle the word reason, because this word reason is going to act like a linchpin in a door hinge that connects us to the 14 verses above us as well as where we're going now. So if you want to, you can draw an arrow up connecting us to the stuff ahead that we had just talked about and then where we're going. All right, and so what we see here is for this reason, for the reason that God has saved you and for now the reason that I'm about ready to explain to you. And you go, so what is the reason? The reason is this. It is because of your faith, because of your faith. So underline the word faith. 
Because of your faith, and what is your faith in? Your faith is in Jesus Christ. So if you want to draw from faith to Jesus Christ in arrow, because what is the faith anchored in? It is anchored in Jesus Christ. This is not some willy-nilly trust in maybe like if the tooth fairy is going to come and give me a quarter or whatever, depending on the rate that you give your kids quarters. It's not that type of faith. No, this is a faith that is anchored in Jesus Christ alone. And he's saying, for this reason... And the first reason he's saying is because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And now the second reason, underline the word love. It's because of your love towards who? The saints. And so he's saying, listen, I have heard two things about you. Your faith in Jesus Christ and your love for one another. And since he's heard about their faith in Jesus Christ and their love for one another, he is now going to treat them as Christians. And so if you want to take this and going, what are some of the marks of a Christian? And Paul would give us at least two here. You can allude to that as what? Christians have faith in Jesus Christ and they love one another. Now, real quick, let's not get the wrong view of loving one another. Loving one another is not a we smile all the time. No one ever frowns, right? We all sing kumbaya at the end of every service. No one ever has anything wrong about anybody, and we all just ignore each other because we need to stay in this happy euphoria. No, our love for one another causes us, when there's tension, to not run, but to run towards each other to work this out because we understand we have one Savior. And that one Savior, our faith in Jesus Christ, allows us to have to wrestle through some of these hard things that will normally split us, that would normally split anyone, but because we have the Spirit in us, the Spirit in us with those that we may struggle with helps us to love one another with a love that is not ours, it's a love that is God's. So the question I ask is, if someone were to look at your life and they would say, for this reason I believe you're a Christian, would they say, because it's clear that you have faith in Jesus Christ and it's clear that you love the saints? Could they say that about Calvary Community Church? That that is a church that has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that is a church that, you know what, yeah, they may not get along all the time, but it is clear that they love one another. Are those two true in your life. I'd like now to look at verse 17 here. Because he, Paul is saying in verse 16, he's, doesn't, he's not going to cease giving thanks to them, remembering their prayer that. And now he's praying that they are given something. Because you underline here, if you look at verse 17 here, you'll see the point where it says, give. So Paul is praying that we are, something is given to these people. And he's praying that what is given to them would be the spirit of wisdom as well as the revelation of the knowledge of him. Or another way of saying it, the revelation of the knowledge of God. So he's praying that they're given a spirit of wisdom and a revelation. And I understand these two phrases to mean this, that we struggle, first of all, with a heart that is out of tune many times with God. And so, you know what we need? This is what Paul is praying here. We need a heart that is able to understand the truckload of truth of Ephesians 1 through 14. We need a heart of wisdom and, and to understand the revelation of God so we know what to do with these deep spiritual truths. 
Because Paul is going to continually keep telling us these deep spiritual truths are for you to know and to understand and to be able to grapple with and be able to know what to do. And what I want to do right here is take a pause because what we're going to hop into now are three words that you're going to see all throughout Paul's writings. You're going to see things, these words, the riches, wisdom, and knowledge, you'll see them kind of said in different ways. And so I want to explain how we see those. So Ephesians 1, 7 through 8, we see that God is, when Paul is talking here, we're going to see the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Then even look at our text today. We're going to see Ephesians 1, 17 through 18. We're going to see the spirit of wisdom, right? The revelation of the knowledge of him and what are the riches of this glorious inheritance. And so Paul is going to understand here that we need to know the riches of God. We need to know the wisdom of God. We need to know the knowledge of God. And these three things are going to be just bubbling out of Paul's writings. And by the time he gets done writing in Romans, and he writes Romans 1 through 11 about the great salvation that we have. In Romans eleven thirty three, what he writes out, and you can just see his bubbling out and his heart cries, and he says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable is judgment. How unscrutable his ways. Oh, that you would know them. And so what we see here is Paul doing this. He's writing to a group of people in Rome. And guess what Rome is telling us? I've got all the money. Rome's got all the wisdom. And Rome's got all the knowledge. And he's trying to say to them, you think that's great? Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom of God don't even compare even close to what Rome's measly offerings. And yet we in our world struggle with that. It is amazing how it seems everywhere we turn, if you're not careful, everywhere you turn, the wealthy seem to be the most despicable, wicked people, yet they seem to prosper. It seems like the arguments that are coming out of the, out of the academical world about all these things, seems as if that they have completely destroyed any need for God. And the academic world continually wants to tell us, you Christians, you don't know what you're talking about. You're silly and you're a fool. But what does Paul want his readers to know? Oh, the wealth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. You need to see this. You need to understand this. This is not something you ever pass over. That is why the second point in this text here in verse 18 is Paul is praying to, that we see the riches of God. In the text there, I'd love for you to underline the phrase, having the eyes of your heart opened. Another way of putting it, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Because what we see here is Paul is praying this for believers. Remember that. Because I want to be clear on this. There's a time and a place for those of you who are saved that you saw. The eyes of your heart were open and you got saved. All right? A miraculous work of the Spirit. But now Paul seems to be praying this again. And we want to be clear because the Bible uses two different terms about eyes. We have the eyes of the mind, sometimes the Bible uses, and then we have the eyes of our heart. I'll give you an example of this. I'm sure you remember with unbelievable clarity we went through the book of Mark, Mark 4.12, right? And you, have, you understand exactly where I'm at, right? No. Mark 4.12, Jesus is explaining why he spoke in parables. All right? And the reason why he spoke in parables, he says here, 
that they may ever be seeing but not perceiving and ever hearing but never understand. Meaning when the parables go forth, there are going to be people that are going to hear it as that's a nice story and it's going to stop there. But there are going to be people that have ears and have eyes to see that are going to understand it in all of its depth, in all of its fullness. And he is praying here, Paul, that the eyes of your heart will be opened. Your eyes of your heart will be enlightened. For what reason? Why does Paul pray that the Ephesians' hearts, the hearts of their eyes would be enlightened? Well, let's look at the text here. You'll see there in that verse, let's see, verse 18, that you may know. I want you to underline that word know, that you may know. Now, this is not just an ascent of knowledge. This is not just a feeling. He's saying that you may know in the depth of your heart what he's about to say. Because feelings come and feelings go. He's saying you need to be anchored in this one thing or in these several things, that you may know, and the first thing he wants us to know is this, the hope to which you were called. Underline that. You may know the hope to which you were called because, and we'll explore this a little bit later, but because there are times where you feel hopeless. There are times where you go, I don't know what's happening here. There are times when the eyes of your heart aren't seeing the eternal hope that is there. When you look all around you and go, things look hopeless. But what is the hope that you were called? We'll explore that in a little bit, but I want to go down to the next thing. Remember, why we need hope is because we are in a battle for our hope. It moves us to our next thing. He wants them to know the riches of the, of the glorious inheritance the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. We need to know not just the hope to which we were called, but we need to know the riches of the glorious inheritance we have. And when we know this, it's supposed to shape and change our lives. Now, because when I read that, we did not all of a sudden, all of a sudden, all of us stand up in unison and just start singing and praising the praise of God. It is not because we're Norwegian or we're Swedish or because we're German and we don't know how to, you know, show any emotion. It's because, let's be honest, it is hard to see with the eyes of our heart many times, isn't it? Because I see with the eyes of my head very easily, but to see with the eyes of my heart to actually change my passions and my emotions and I'll give you an example of how this plays out. Timmy, a couple of, um, I think it was two years ago, on Father's Day, gave me a fictitious Father's Day present. And it was fictitious, but it was real. He said, Daddy, I was able to save up enough money to get us Eagles preseason tickets. All right, and so I would, hey, that's exciting. But I didn't see them, right? They're just fictitious. He's like, they're on Mommy's phone if you want to look at them. And, and so it was fictitious, right? We hadn't seen them. Then the day came where they actually showed up, and we opened the package up, and we're like, wow, look, two tickets to an Eagles preseason game. Then the day arose, and our excitement grew a little bit, right? Then the day arose that we drove up to Lambeau Field to watch the Eagles preseason game. And as we were up there, we saw the Eagles come in. And then Timmy and I were like, yeah, like, they're real players, all right? And the eyes of our mind were also getting, starting to see, right? And the eyes of our heart, in this way, were getting excited, Right? And then the other team showed up, which was nice, so they could, the Eagles could play somebody. And as we were there, all of a sudden the team comes out, right? 
And they're, they're playing. And we're like, we're watching an Eagles game. That means absolutely nothing, but we're watching an Eagles game right now. And all of a sudden, the Eagles score, and we cheer. All right, and now we're looking at this. went downhill from there, but we're looking at this as we play. And all of a sudden, we went from just thinking about it, right, to starting to actually see it. This is why, as I look at it, in that example, that is what we need to be praying each day, that the eyes of our heart would actually understand the riches and the wealth that we have, that would actually be understand Ephesians 1 through 14 and have that anchor us and have us affect our praise and the way we live. Because he goes on to write, not just that alone. I mean, the hope to which you are called is phenomenal, right? The riches of your inheritance. And he goes down and even says even more. Underline this, the immeasurable greatness of the power of God. The immeasurable greatness of his power. And you know what this power is doing? It is not just stationary for us to look at. This power, look at the text, it's actually coming towards you. Right? And who's it coming towards? It's coming towards those who believe. And who are those who believe? And you would go, that's you if you're saved. That the power of God is coming towards you for a reason. Which brings us to our... Well, actually, no, it doesn't bring us to our third point. It brings us to Ephesians 3. And you go, let's dive into what is this power? Because in Ephesians 3 here, this great doxology at the end that he's just, you can see it building into him. Ephesians 3 here, notice what this power is to do. That you being, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength, another way of saying that, may have the power to comprehend with all of the saints. This is a group effort here. What are we supposed to comprehend together? The breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all in the fullness of God. And so what is this power coming towards us? For us to know Christ, for us to know him in all of its fullness, not a cranial knowledge, but a knowledge that exposes our heart to the praise and adoration of God. And this greatness cannot be put in a box. What does Paul say this greatness is? unable to be measured. You could measure and count Rome's wealth. You could also show the limits of Rome's wisdom. You could show the limits of Rome's knowledge. But what do we, those of us who are in Christ, have? The greatness, the wealth, and the knowledge of God. And many times we sit here, and if we're not careful... Ephesians 1 through 14 and books like this of Ephesians can become... Oh, that's a lot of work. One of the beautiful things about God's word is the more we dig in and pray that the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, the more we want to know. And the more we want to know, the more we realize how little we actually know. If any of you have ever had a chance to go, whether it was school in your graduate, when you were your undergrad work, whether it was just through 12th grade or whatever, every time you go to school, guess what you learn? doesn't matter what school you're in, whether it's kindergarten to your master's, you get to learn what you don't know, right? And the more you learn, the more you realize, I don't know that, right? This is what this text is supposed to do, and this is why Paul is praying for them. Because here, our point three is this, that it's a prayer to know the power that is within us. 
For those who have been chosen, redeemed, and sealed, you are in Christ. And since we are in Christ, the same power that rose Christ from the dead is the same power that's working within us. It's the same power that's causing us to walk in his way. And I want to look at three things here when I truly understand that the power of God is working in me. When I understand the power of God's been working in me, I understand this, that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, that same power that caused a dead person to become alive, right? That same power is working within me. And how did it work within me? Well, Ephesians 2 will tell us, but we're not there. But at one time, I was dead in my transgressions and sin. Not just somewhat dead. Not just a little sick. Not just having a fever. No, I was dead. Stone cold dead. And God brought me to life. Just like the way he called out to Lazarus, come forth. And those words that he called out to Lazarus, come forth, were the power in of himself to cause Lazarus to come alive. And what did Lazarus do? He rose, went forth, and followed. Right? That is what happened to our salvation. And that is the power that's working within us. And that is the power that when we understand these things, cause us to praise the Lord who redeemed us. It also... That power that's working within us now gives us the power to say no to sin. Before we were saved, we were slave masters to sin. The best we could do was pick which poison we were going to pick off the shelf and try to drink it to satisfy our souls. But now that we are redeemed, those of you in this room are redeemed, you say sin has no longer has its curse over me. It no longer has control in me. I can, desire, I can actually go after what will bring me life and hope. And this here no longer has control over me. And I can live in the life that God has given me. And I can live in the joy that God has given me. But you know what happens? It's easy to go back. You don't even need a leader to go back to where you were. Because why? You were there, right? You need a leader to show you how to go forward. And if our eyes get off of Christ, who is leading us to how to walk in his path, it is easy to turn around and start acting as if this world has power over us. And it has no power over you. Your salvation, because if you are saved, you are sealed. Your salvation is as good as done. And so now you can live in that victorious life that God has called you to do. You don't have to work your way into salvation. It has been done and accomplished on the cross. And if we understand that, it should be bringing the burden that Satan wants to tell us we have. Christ says, no, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. But unless you have an understanding of the truth and the depth of your salvation... This burden can be very easily become checklist. But if you understand that I was loved, that I have been redeemed, that I have been sealed, the joy of walking in this path here brings life. But yet, oh Christian, it's a battle, isn't it? Because the world is saying no, and God's word is saying yes. And guess what? That tension that is there, that is why we need one another. That's why Paul is praying for this, that you'll be able to comprehend these things together. One other thing, too, 
what we see here in this is we see that this power is the same power that is in the gospel. This power is the power that is in the gospel that we no longer, and never once did we ever have the ability anyway, when we share the gospel, the gospel has the power in itself to save. I don't have to bring anything into the gospel message to make it more powerful. The gospel message opened blind eyes to the truth. And so now I can go boldly with the truth. Now, yes, I understand that there's nervousness when you share the gospel. One of the reasons nervousness comes is because you know what's at stake. So don't think that nervousness is bad, but lack of boldness is a problem because you can boldly tell someone the truth, but do it in a way that's also what? Loving and caring, right? But yeah, it's nerve-wracking. And don't, just because you're scared to do something and just because there's trepidation does not mean does not mean at all that is all of a sudden there's something wrong with you. You got to check your heart, right? And go, what has God called me to do? I want to turn here to uh, the last couple verses here in Ephesians chapter 22 and um, I mean verses 22 and 23. Far above all ruling and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come, he put all things under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All authority has been given to Jesus. All authority. Not just some. All authority has been given to him, and the church is under his care. When you understand that, your response is, praise God that I am not left to feel my way in this dark world. Praise God that he has given me the light. Praise God that I am saved. The gospel is not something we move past. The gospel is a thing that anchors us, that keeps us rock solid. That is why Paul can start off in his prayer, I want you to know these things. And then when we come to our final day, when our chest is heaving of those last final breaths that we're grappling with, we know because of the hope to which he has called you, because of the inheritance and the riches that he has given you, because of the immeasurable greatness of God, death is not the end. We know that death just unlocks the key to endless praise. And as we understand that, that should cause us to call out to praise the Lord, right? And we praise God that we are able to live a life calling sinners to repentance. We are able to live a life of repentance, knowing that in me dwells no good thing. One of the reasons that we light candles that are here is not because we light candles and we're trying to get some Yankee candle deal. It is because we understand that we forget quickly the things of God, right? All of a sudden, before you know it, it's Easter, and Easter's gone, and you're like, oh, there just went my lily, and it died. And we don't even remember it after that. But we need to be a church that knows the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. We need to know it personally, and we need to pray that each other knows it as well. And we need to remind each other of that great salvation, of that salvation that is ours for those of us who are in Christ. And that salvation causes and changes my life. And so the so what of this section of Scripture is this. Am I living my life in a way that demonstrates what God has done in me? Is my life a praise 
a praise offering to the one who saves. Oh, Christian, my heart desires for you to know the things of God, to not be satisfied with the diluted, watered-down, trickling, filled with poison and arsenic view of that the world tries to offer, and yet so many times, if we're not careful, we drink deeply thinking that it's going to satisfy. And my prayer is that each day you wake up, and my prayer for you is this, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so you may know the great salvation to which you were called. And you know what? That is no small thing. And you will live your whole life exploring the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. And it should respond by praise to the one who has redeemed you. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, we stand amazed in your presence. And we wonder how you could love us, sinners, get made clean. So may our song be how wonderful, how marvelous is your great love for me. May your praise be ever on our lips and may our lives glorify you. To you alone be the glory. In your son's name we pray, amen. I'd like for you to stand for the benediction, Ephesians chapter three. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all we can ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ through all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. amen. May you go to the praise and the glory of God.